Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Roundtable, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers and investors in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion that we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Now, here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. Welcome to another edition of Top Traders Roundtable, a podcast series on managed futures and alternative investments. My name is Niels Kostrup-Larsen, and I'm delighted to welcome you to today's conversation with industry leaders and pioneers in managed futures which is brought to you by CME Group. Today is another very special episode, not just for me, but for the whole managed futures industry, because for the first time in a very long time, we have brought together some extraordinary pioneers of systematic trading and trend-following strategies who really have influenced the whole world when it comes to rule-based investing and inspired countless of firms to mirror their success. So I'm very pleased and super excited to welcome Michael Adam, David Harding, and Marty Lewick also known as the original founders of AHL. And of course, today, Michael and Marty are also known as the co-founders of Aspect Capital and David as the founder and CEO of the largest firm in our industry, Winton Capital. First of all, welcome and thank you very much for spending some time with me today. I think it's safe to say that most people in our industry have heard of you. And since we are sitting here in the famous Abbey Road Studios in London, famous for its association with rock stars like the Beatles, I think it's fitting to describe you all as rock stars of the systematic trading industry. Now, like the Beatles, you worked very successfully together for a number of years before parting ways. So today we're going to talk about the time before and after the split, so to speak. But let me start with a slightly different question, and that is, how does it feel being back together after all these years, or have you in fact kept in touch on a regular basis? <clears throat> We do keep in touch. Uh, you know, we follow one another's successes and, and areas of interest. But Mike and I see each other often, David less often. But the three of us have gotten together a few times over the past few years. And, I think we had a dinner for the 20th and the 25th, as I recollect. We've had yep. two dinners in the last 10 years to celebrate AHL, AHL's sure. founding. Fantastic. Yeah, and yeah. David and I meet. Once a year, maybe for lunch, to talk about Marty, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. Now, if my memory serves me right, Mike, your family business played an important role in the initial stages of AHL when that was being born. So take us back to the Oxford University days and how it all got started for you. Well, like, like many successful outcomes, it started from very unpromising beginnings. I dropped out of Oxford without a degree and thereby render myself essentially unemployable. Like Bill Gates. Yes, <laughs> yes. There the similarity ends. <laughs> but there we go. So for want of anything else to do, I ended up working in the family broking business. And at that time in London, there were probably thousands, actually, of little broking businesses beavering away with their own franchise. The particular franchise of the family firm was selling the Mauritian sugar crop on the London market. In, in fact, a detail that turned out to be quite relevant when we later 
got together with the Mann Group with their historic connection to sugar. And I ended up in a, in a, in a back room doing, doing the books by hand and drawing charts by hand. And then laziness drove me to automate my own job. A computer arrived in the office. There was no one else who was interested. They gave it to me. And I created a database to draw the charts by hand, uh, sorry, by computer on a flatbed plotter and an accounting package to do the bookkeeping. And that was the beginning of my interest in both computer programming and its and making, application to And markets. making yourself redundant. And making myself redundant. And la- <laughs> so laziness. So that was the role that that played. I already knew Marty and met David. And David was one of the few other people in London, along with the astrologists and other sort of peripheral nutcases who at that stage said it was possible to trade markets systematically. Uh, and we ended up working together for my father in in, in in the company. But I think you should ask David and Marty from their perspective how Absolutely. that felt. Absolutely. <laughs> sure. No, I, and I was going to ask, ask, ask you, Marty, I mean, you only had a short time at, at Nomura. What compelled you to, to join Mike? Well, you know, so I'm, I managed to hang on long enough to get a degree at, at, at Oxford. And then in, in that era, we were sort of launched into the milk round, and it was pretty much expected that you would go to work for a, a bank or an accounting firm or, or something like that. So I wound up in Nomura selling Japanese equities, and I didn't even know what an equity was. So it, it, it was, actually, I did very well. So I'm, I'm told I was the young lion of that year's intake of the equity trading desk, but I'd spend all of my lunch times hanging out with my friend Michael. And during my summer holidays at university, I'd learned to program uh, working in Washington, D.C. for a Department of Defense contractor. And this was fascinating. This was just great fun. So rather than do a slog of a job, I went to have fun coding a machine, you know, coding an early Hewlett Packard workstation with Michael working for his dad. I mean, it, it didn't feel like work at the time. Sure. And... This, I think, is before you, you, you sort of meet with, with, with David. But, I mean, you started out trading a very small portfolio, I think 25,000 pounds, six markets or something like that. I mean, how did that sort of come about in terms of starting trading these markets using rules? Well, my recollection, and, and Mike will correct me, but was that Michael's father was pretty instrumental in saying, why don't you boys see if there's anything in these technical trading models? So we bashed them around a while and sort of distilled it to what we thought was uh, a useful model. And at the time, the only data we had were physical commodity markets. So the first portfolio was, as you described, I think, cocoa, coffee, sugar, and three base metals, and presented it to Michael's father. And he sunk the family fortune, well, 25,000 pounds into that. Sure. Now, during this time, you meet David, and despite David being a Cambridge graduate, you seem to hit it off straight away. <laughs> now, David, what were you doing at the time you met with Mike and, and Marty, and how did you get to this point in your career? Um, I was working for another futures trading CTA, the biggest one in the UK, which managed, I think, $4.5 million, uh, <laughs> which was called Sabre Fund Management. And the job I had there, that was already my third job. I'd started on the Futures Exchange, actually, the day it had started trading the London International Financial Futures Exchange, but then moved to a commodity broker. And then when that went bust, I went to work for a commodity trader. And I had to draw hundreds of charts by hand every day. Many more, I'm sure, than Michael had to draw. <laughs> um, and that was not really what I felt I was sort of cut out for in life. 
but it did give me a lot of time for reflecting on chart patterns. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and during my previous jobs, I'd become pretty interested in, you know, how you could make money by trading markets. It's not such an easy thing, not such a hard thing to be interested in when you're a young, sure. sciencey sort of man. You know, how yeah. could I make a lot of money trading markets? I'd, I'd, I'd read a lot of the books. I'd read all the books on technical analysis, and also I'd read all the books on bond maths and so on. So, so I knew a fair amount about it, and I had a pretty strong feeling that that the efficient market, markets weren't efficient. There was some sort of point to trying to forecast them. When we when I sort of started talking to Michael and Marty, we were actually trying to engineer a sort of combination of you know, the firm I was working for, the giant $4.5 million CTA and the, you know, somewhat smaller, I think, sort of $2.5 million Brockham. But it's clearly very motivating to me that these guys had written software that was well in advance of what you saw in most of the banks and institutions. And I could, my sort of fantasy at that stage is that they would, you know, take my ideas and test them and turn them into reality. In practice, they didn't need all that much of my ideas because they already had perfectly good ideas of their own. But there was some... Definitely, eventually, when we got together, that was the attraction, was right. that, you know, I think I thought my ideas were better than they probably actually were, you know, which is excusable. Well, we should all think our own ideas are good, <laughs> shouldn't we? You know? uh, and I don't think my ideas were useless. But the fusion of one of the most amazing things was when I saw the the places that they put charts on the walls and you could see where the, where the computer was saying buy and sell and it was the same, almost the same places that the arcane science of technical analysis had taught, had sort of taught me you should buy and sell. So that was striking to me, you know, that an algorithm could produce the same result as this body of expertise. That was yeah. very striking. No, indeed. And if I can stay with you, David, for a little while, I mean, science combined with finance is not uncommon today, but I imagine back then this was not the usual cocktail that you would come across. When did you really realize that you could combine these two things successfully? And I don't know whether it's science in a sense that you initially thought of when you looked at the charts or whether the science part came a little bit later, so to speak. I think that um, scientists were starting to be recruited in growing numbers into the financial service industry from the early 80s, even before the Big Bang in 1987. I can remember this feeling in 1987 that I'd sort of failed, really, because, you know, with a degree in physics and five years in the city, I wasn't earning £100,000 a year. You'll remember that was sort of height of Mrs Thatcher, and I was supposed to be a yuppie at that point in time, and I definitely wasn't a yuppie. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't like nobody, no scientists went into finance, but what did happen is that most of them were all easily drawn into the orthodoxy, which was um, efficient market theory and, and uh, stochastic calculus, partial differential equations, that turned out to be a sort of fertile career option for people. So great most scientists went into these slightly idealised branches of finance, which years later I see as culminating in the crash of 2008, really, the over-idealisation of how the financial system works. The, the theories, the mathematical theories at the heart of finance were wrong. Uh, we we were empiricists, mm. you know. We were all physicists. None yeah. of us were mathematicians, and none of us actually even even Mike. Just, he, he tried to escape, but he had a sort of physics training to some extent. So, <laughs> as scientists, as physicists, you're trained to have an experimental mm. look at the world. And the the um, 
software they'd written did enable us to do experiments and we were all I think well trained and therefore we did do some good experiments. That's what I'd draw out I, I think you know I don't think we went into it thinking ah this is a problem that lends itself to these particularly particular techniques but we had a we had a mindset we had an inquisitive mindset and a, as you say an empiricist perspective on the world which was juxtaposed or was different from the managed futures industry as was in that era in the in the states and I'm, I'm making a gross generalization which may not be true but my sense of it was it was predominantly sort of experienced traders floor traders who had encoded their rule set using a computer and and that was it it didn't it worked for them and now they could sort of head to the beach or go and do other activities, and, and that was good enough. They, and we, without thinking about it, our, our, our attitude was, well, I've done this, it looks good enough, but what if I try that? What if I expand this? What if I add a new market? What if I go faster? You know, Mike was reminding us about, you know, moving to sort of intraday execution. There was a constant inquisitiveness. And that, I, th I think that was born, maybe it's just the people we were, but also an, an element of that scientific also, also, we were our time, we were very lucky because technology arrived just at the right time. So, for the first time, you could get. I mean, I actually, I've still got a a proposal that we should buy a new Hewlett Packard computer, and then they were incredibly expensive. Now I think about it, but nevertheless, relative to history, they were. It was it was plausible to get some pretty serious processing power, and I think a lot of things we did. We did them because we could, and it turned out that that made us unusual because most people simply couldn't run the experiments that we ran. In the first three years, we were always waiting for a new, more powerful Hewlett-Packard yeah. model to turn up <laughs> so that we could run the experiment that was now taking 36 hours to run. So when the new computer came, we'd get the first one in the country and it would run you know, in one hour instead of 36 hours. And then we would find a bigger, a bigger uh, something which required more yep. processing power. And then we'd be waiting for another six months for the next computer to turn up. There were, these weren't even very big computers, were they? Well, then, they had to be affordable. That was the point. Well, in hindsight, I mean, in, in now they seem pathetically sort of weedy. But at the time, we were running experiments, which when we showed them to other people, the things that we were, the questions we were asking and the answers we were getting, as far as they were concerned, it was magic. Mm -hmm. And... We actually, which I don't think has ever really been talked about, but at the beginnings of what we did, we didn't make money as investment managers at all. We made money as, as consultants. So we were, we were answering other people's questions. Mm. And I think we learned a lot from looking at other people's market-related problems that otherwise we wouldn't have learned. And some quite surprising insights followed from that. But we didn't approach that because, well, I didn't anyway, because I was interested in markets. For me, I was interested in the technology and the challenge of writing the code. So I think the other thing that really worked between the three of us is that David was the one who was absolutely obsessed with markets, and which was good, really, because one of us needed to be. Um, yeah. So I think we were also lucky because we had a, a sort of accidental balance of, of, of skills between us. Mm -hmm. That, that well, made it's entirely us lucky because you set out to recruit me. You set out to recruit me for that reason, actually. That's that is true. But <laughs> yeah. you, so were the, that's not... you were the only person I could who <laughs> you were literally the only candidate. So, <laughs> so you know, we, yes, probably the less said about that, the better. So we thought, well, he'll do. <laughs> So anyway, so David, you do join the Adam family business. I mean, 
what what happens next and when do you realize really serious that you're on to something and and is it even in these early days that you come up with some of these sort of groundbreaking discoveries that you probably are responsible for at the end of the day in this field? You know, when you discover something important and true, you know you've discovered it. Mm. Uh, but you don't know that it's going, you're going to be sitting there 30 years later talking about it. I mean, you just know at that moment in time, that's you know, That's I was just cool. reminiscing about yeah. Mike discovering something earlier to do with um, time-varying volatility. And he, he came back and produced this result, which was a normalisation that you can use for making, you know, historical time series simulation more robust. Mm-hmm. And I was joking with the guys before, because I said, you know, I said to them, you know, That's brilliant. You know, they didn't know it was brilliant, but I knew it was brilliant. I mean, they... They did, but uh, I didn't discover it, but I could see its significance and it remains in my, it's one of the things I tell people when they say, you know, what are the memorable moments in your career? You know, there are two or two or three or four discoveries like that, which are really, really material. Unfortunately, there's another 10 great discoveries, which have also been equally exciting, which have all turned out to be wrong, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So, So, you know. That that sense of discovery is not necessarily confined to the things that ultimately turn out to be very important. Um, I've had a few, a few uh, brilliant discoveries that have been wrong. But the the, the beautiful, the, what makes a discovery amazing is that it's elegant and beautiful and simple. That's mm. that's that's you know, if it's a very and very that, complicated right. piece of maths leading probably, to a very significant result, it's probably, probably not, wrong. Not, not right. You know? So I, yes, elegance and simplicity. I mean, it, 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 yes, that feeling that you've you've discovered something that once you've discovered it, it becomes completely obvious and, and, and useful and, and leads to great insight. You know, so there, there are probably only two or three, and, and I, I'm sure that both David and Marty, having continued at the, at the cutting edge, have discovered more since. But I certainly feel that we were, we were very lucky to be approaching this at a time when, as I say, processing power came on board, digital data, you could get the data. We we made very rapid progress in hindsight, and we probably and I, but I still only think we found three or four things. And are um, these things we can talk about today? I mean, are they kind yeah, of? I mean, they're they're pretty simple, they and uh, and they're all pretty obvious, and and I would perceive that they're well understood now. Well, by yeah, no, it's, the it's world. finance one hundred and one, and yeah, and yeah. so but we didn't have a framework for yeah. equalizing so, the risk across different markets. So things like so is moving to using an exponential schema for for assessing risk and for normalizing markets, which is now, of course so widely used that it's it's now the regulatory standard imposed on on all market participants which of course is not what we had designed that measure for so that would be one i, I think because we were doing work for guilt market makers who are really struggling with the fact that they'd lost their franchises and no longer had a protected access to that market we did some work for them and discovered that we could model their pnl to within you know plus or minus half a percent per quarter by simulating it using a trend-following trading strategy. And I think I always saw that as a huge insight because it told it's told us that trend-following is really a, a systematic way of thinking about market-making. Mm-hmm. And in turn, I think that pointed us at, well, in which case, if that's what it is, we need to be concerned with the cost because we saw how important it was to market-makers what their cost of market access was. Uh, in the sense that they needed to be large and negative. They needed large spreads to make more money, and if you squashed those spreads, you made less money, and there was a strong relationship. 
So that that told us that 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 market access costs were incredibly important, and we started measuring our full cost of market access from the point of sampling to the point of execution, and we started looking at what we were paying to execute. And that led us on a drive to, to, to set up a trading desk, to get close to the markets, to talk directly to the floor. So that insight made us focus on something that our competitors just weren't focused on with, a, with real confidence that, that it was important. And that also made us extremely unpopular with the brokerage community. Yeah, well, you're, you're, getting, you're getting ahead in the story. <laughs> but, yes. So, I mean, I, I think it's three or four things, but sure. three or four simple things can lead to a whole set of subsequent insights mm-hmm. that point you in a, in a direction and give you confidence that, you, that you're worrying about the right things. There are, probably, there are a few others mm-hmm. I can think of, mm-hmm. but those are two big ones. Now, you end up splitting from the Adam family business in February of 1987 to form AHL with a whopping £100,000, I believe, in assets under management. How did you make this work, both from a trading perspective? I mean, it's limited how many markets you can trade with that amount of money. And also from the business perspective, how did you go about growing that? And, and did you have to hustle in the beginning like all startups? We always hustled. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did consulting, and uh, I think it was fantastic that we did. That's right. We did various bits of consulting, and all of them taught us something. So we did some research for a company in, in option replication and recycled that work when thinking about how to gear a guaranteed fund, yep. which turned out to be really, really important. So sure. I don't think AHL would have been successful if we hadn't worked for other people. Also, I don't think Marty and I, because there was some question when when we left Brockham as to whether we would start a business at all. And if David hadn't come sort of riding back over the horizon and said, you've got to be kidding, we've got to do yeah. something with this, Marty and I would have gone off we, and no, we sold technology. Do, exactly. We were yeah. going to do we were com- going to, computer consultancy or something yeah. like that. I think, I think, but that I look back on that and think there was an element, though, of also, you know, we didn't know what we'd discovered. So systematic trading in those early days felt like a happy accident. And when you, so when things were going well, you think, yes, we're so smart. When things are going badly, it's miserable. And and it did take many years to get the confidence in the underlying statistics and in the work, the body of work that we had all been involved in. But I, th- I think we must have come off the back of some miserable period because we were ready to throw in the towel on the investment management business. You know, this has to be done. Let's go and be, you know, go and get a, start a business cleaning computers or something really entrepreneurial like that. We had some and, really compelling accounting and, and, software. <laughs> Yes. So yeah, absolutely. We were get, and we sold that. For but a bit. You know, David, you were you were very I had more robust. Confidence. I had more yeah. confidence that what they had done in terms of developing computer software was of significant value because I'd been out there. I'd had a number of jobs. I'd had more exposure, mm. and so I was confident that they, um, you know, they had developed on the on personal computers good color graphics, <laughs> and um, for example, heat maps, sure. uh, and this. Um, it wasn't even that that much of an innovative technique then. I mean, it, um, it was it was innovative on a personal computer in sure. finance, but they were using it in weather and this sort of thing. You know, it wasn't uh, unheard of. Uh, but you will see people using heat maps today when they're trying to blind you with science. You know, it's, it's three directional graphs in which color is a, a graph that is still mm-hmm. today used yeah. sort of to be impressive. So when I 
did demonstrations to my friend in the city with the heat maps in. They were on the of, only colour they, screen they'd ever seen attached to a yeah, they, personal they, computer. They, they were very, very impressed, you know. So it's also fair to say that we had some loyalish clients who started, you know, who, who traded with us from the very, very beginning. There were one okay. or two clients who were extremely supportive to getting the company going because mm. they had already got themselves into bed with the old company. And the old company folding was a nuisance for sure. them because they'd done all sorts of work and so on. So they, they, we had clients that were conspiratorially wanted us to, to succeed and start a new company, didn't they? So I had mm. sort of, I guess I had clients on my side as well, you know, not enough, as Mike says, to support the new business, but yeah. enough to create continuity in the track record. Mm. Yeah, but we never borrowed any money. I mean, we sort of borrowed, we used some office space from my dad. We had friends that would join the company and did some of the the donkey work that we'd promised to pay and, later. And, and still remind me occasionally that, that they never ended up earning any of the business and barely speak to me. No, it's not true. <laughs> <laughs> not true. Well, the six months that, that with looking back on that history now, that it passed in a flash at the time was an extremely, a lot of stuff happened in six months, didn't it? As you say, we had mm. people join, fall out, you know, leave. Yeah. As, as old startups. And, and, and we hopped mm. offices. We went from my dad's office to a serviced office in the basement to Sabres. I think we had about we, we, we sat certainly the, six or eight offices in the first two years. Um, yeah. So we were very mobile. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was, I mean, the other, the other thing that was sort of, I think, unusual at the time is that I don't think any of the three of us knew anyone of our age who, was, who would even contemplate starting a business. So there was no... There was no sense that we were doing the right thing, starting our own business, because we just didn't know anyone else who was. So there just wasn't that culture in, in the fact, UK. In fact, it was the other way around. All of our cool friends were getting fancy jobs in, in big institutions. So yeah. we were the... We were way... We were the, completely the un, being left the unemployable. behind. We were the unemployables <laughs> doing, the, doing the crazy thing, which is another huge sort of cultural shift that, that is almost hard to remember the way that, that it felt to be starting your own businesses. Three people in their mid twenties who had no idea what they were doing back in the in those days because it, it sort of clearly felt like as if you were doing the wrong thing or at least if you listened to advice. And, and um, just to, just on that the world has changed so much. Yeah. But just uh, about sort of starting business, I mean, are there some of the challenges that you had back then that you can kind of still relate to as you grow your businesses today? I mean, do I, yes. I mean, I, I, it still, to me, feels uncomfortable to start something new. But at least when I meet other people, they, they think it's the right thing to do and it's sort of assume you're going to be successful. So the difference is how it feels. Um, but the challenges are the same. Mm -hmm. You know, trying to persuade people to work for you when, you know, you've, all you've got is an, an empty room and an idea. idea. <laughs> it's, it's really quite difficult. Yeah. I mean, you know, what do you think, David? If you were starting Winton again today? Well, the situation is different now, isn't it? I mean, we were... Um, if, obviously, if we'd... I, I like to say, generally, about my own career, if I'd known what it entailed, I wouldn't have started it, it, it roughly speaking. In other words, you know, if we'd known what we were going to have to go through, I think the answer is you wouldn't have done it again. Yeah. You would have got a nice, safe job. It just wasn't, you know... It's great to have been successful, but... but um, it can be a bit of a bruising, sure. Sure. a bit of a bruising experience, and just a sheer length. You, know, you think you just don't have an adequate, 
level of foresight into what it. If people knew what starting a new business would entail, no one would ever start a new business. <laughs> I think, that, I think that's true. There is an element. No, we were of, certainly naive. Yes, yeah, we had that exactly. Going. You need a degree of impetuosity or recklessness or naivety or even, dare I say, sort of greed. You, you know, you need something which gets you over the hump yeah. of doing something which is essentially not a rational decision. <laughs> the, the only thing I'd say, you know, sort of probably seems to be a, a persistent feature every time you you know you start a new business is is the people you know, you know that's what has been a perennial feature both for good and bad mm. if you if you pick the wrong egg it, it can be remarkably disruptive and if you get the right group of people it can be remarkably you know uh, empowering well, or, or you don't have that leverage. much power at this when you start a business you don't have that much power i mean these days when you fill a position you can interview mike joked earlier i was the only candidate you know <laughs> so for filling a position senior position in your company now you would interview you get 47 for choice, people you get I a mean, short list then you narrow it down and you get yeah. six people to interview them and you've got a sort of better chance of ending yeah. up with a person in the job who wants to do the yeah, job but there's three sort of 25 year olds we 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 had to you know we were obviously <laughs> making it up as we went along and I think that was a happy accent as well because we ended up we couldn't possibly have recruited people with vast experience in banking and trading because we a we couldn't afford them and b they were going to be older than us and therefore they almost certainly weren't going to want to work for us or at least that's how we perceived it at the time. So um, we were almost forced to recruit sort of new graduates, young, unformed people, and I think that turned out to be an advantage because uh, you know. Certainly, subsequently, whenever we employed anyone who had experience in markets, we would we would really struggle to train them to unlearn all the things that they'd been taught that actually were completely um, destructive and um, inappropriate and, and and clearly an obstacle to progress. Mm -hmm. So, right from the early days, it meant we were recruiting raw talent and then inventing the ways in which we wanted them to work from scratch. I think that was a, turned out to be a good thing. It didn't feel like such a good thing at the time. But I think it was an advantage we had. Now, clearly you had a scientific approach to, to trading. Is that what attracted Man Group to you in, in the beginning? Or what happened and, and how and when did this all start taking place? Well, well the Man Group already had a, a very successful relationship with Mint. So, obviously, it's Height, Matthews and... Yeah. And it's, I don't think it's entirely accidental that there were three of them, Height, Matthews and Dalman, that they were systematic and the man group had built a great franchise around a branded product that wasn't branded man, had built a big organisation around it and they're based in London and they saw three people, Adam Harding and Luak, systematic, I thought well we've been here before, we know how to do this. So I think part of what attracted the man group to us was the analogy with Mint. Mm. And we were valuable internal competition for Mint, I think, as they saw it. Is that a bad comment? They I, bought 51% of AHL. I remember the meeting where yes. they said, you wouldn't consider selling 51% and at least two of us, if not three, said, yes, we would. <laughs> 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 uh, they bought 51% of AHL where they had 50% of Mint, so Mint was a deadlock. So. It was clearly in the minds of the deal makers at Man that they would buy a majority stake and then use that to digest mm. and control, you know, the the um, the investment management half of the enterprise, which is precisely what they they did. So it was a extremely well executed manoeuvre, actually. By yeah. and, and and for us, because of what we 
knew about markets, there were two things that were in our minds. One was the obvious one, which was distribution, which is we needed to raise money. And the Mangrove clearly had a machine for raising money, so that was attractive to us. But as, at least as big a motivation for us was market access, because we figured out that as an outsider, we simply couldn't get cost-effective access to markets, whereas the Mangrove was plugged into the markets we wanted to trade. So those were the, our motivations. But that, that, but that created by those two quite, things. quite a tension because the original, as my <laughs> recollection was the original deal with uh, with Mint was forged by the brokerage division of, of the Man Group. So you know, it really was a case of the, the Mint model spitting out the orders, which got faxed across to the brokerage unit, and, and they the, just and executed in their, it. In their own good time. In, in their, their own, own good time, time <laughs> they executed it. So everyone was happy. It was spilling off money. It was over a billion dollars, and it was at capacity. They really couldn't execute more. So... You say element of internal competition. It was a case of they were onto a good thing, and could they find some more product, which which we looked like we represented. So they did get a bit of a surprise when, you know, we said, Actually. yes, absolutely, but we we are asset managers, and and this brokerage bit of the business has to get a little bit sharper. Yes, and so that was. I mean, in hindsight, you know, we talk you talk about the tensions and the and you know the. You know, we then had an uncomfortable few years, or I certainly did, and it felt so... Which We were on the fifth floor, and they were on the fourth floor. I have no idea. Yes, <laughs> the key, I think that's right. One of those. It's that way around. And there was a, it was a... It felt to me like a constant war of attrition because we were constantly driving to reduce the time between sample and execution, to reduce the cost per round turn of what we are doing so we could trade faster. Because if you've got a tiny edge then one of the ways to increase the probability of success is to roll the dice that you've got that's got an edge more quickly. But you can only do that if the cost of each roll is low enough. So that worked completely counter to the natural instincts of the brokerage division who understood that having freedom to execute with a secure order flow was highly profitable for them, shall we say, as as it was for any broker. So... And it's strange, it seems strange now because, of course, everyone is now obsessed with mm. speed of market access and cost, and no broker would ever say, send, you, send me your orders and I, I'll let you know when I've executed them at some stage tomorrow. And when you heard <laughs> about Mint, is that the first time you realized that there was actually an industry for what you were doing across the pond? Or? No, David already knew. I okay. knew. Okay. Yeah. David was aware of that. So I joined Sabre in 1985, okay. but actually in uh, before I'd been into commodity broker, where we were developing trading systems. Okay. So, but it's a tiny industry, like I said, it was a tiny industry. Yeah. In about 1985 or 1986, I went to the managed futures industry conference, which was hosted by Mort Barretts, who was the and Leon sure. Rose, who were the yeah. founding fathers, uh, and it was Orlando in Florida. It was my first overseas business trip, and um, you know I felt like a titan of finance, but. There were about sort of 50 people with, you know, Leon and Marley and you know, Leon and Rose and Morton Marley, their wives, sort of sitting behind a trestle table in the foyer of the hotel. And in the neighbouring ballroom was the DAF Regional Truck Drivers Convention. And they had an ice sculpture. They had, you know, huge buffet. They had armies of people. And it put the managed futures industry into context. There was this sort of little knot of people with a 
elderly professor and his wife sitting behind a bench on the one hand, and the Daff Regional Truck Drivers Convention was, you know, a, a trestle tables laden with banquets. But it, well, I mean, as an industry, then it was also it was it was it was the sort of I was going to use the word ridicule, but it pretty much was. So it, it, we were definitely the, at the edge of finance that was cons- considered to be eccentric and quick. I mean, in our first year of existence at HL, The Economist wrote an article saying that, that we were you know, wrong, doomed to fail, and that markets were efficient and, and you know, that we were essentially wasting our time. Yeah, I mean, it, it placed us alongside some institutions in the States that were doing pioneering work, employing computers to to measure and predict financial markets. And the tone of the article was quite sceptical. Oh, I mean, completely. I mean, they completely bought into the fact that markets were efficient and therefore what we were doing couldn't possibly work. So we were very much, that the industry then was very much, you know, so if you used astrological charts to predict markets, then you would be at the same conference as as the early trend followers. Well, fishing market theory was the orthodoxy, and, and it was uh, and it really and was trading so. systems was the heresy. Absolutely, and it was it was uh, right at the right at the lunatic fringe. Sure, <laughs> but we we're quite that's just where we belong. <laughs> now, David, I got the impression from an earlier conversation with Marty that you. We're out talking to potential investors in the early days. And I'm curious, what were the conversations like back then? What arguments did you use to make them interested in what AHL was doing? This, of course, was a few years after Dr. Lindner came out with his white paper, which to some extent you could say still stands uh, today. So was this already part of your sales pitch if i can call it that yeah i i took the the, the software that they had developed, turned it into a presentation which was a, which made an excellent sales pitch from the brokerage community we had instant interest for all yeah. the brokers were, yeah. were interested and all, a lot of people from the commodity markets were interested there's a kind of schism in in particularly in hedge funds people who come from the securities houses which is the investment banks and that's a much more sort of as much that is generally much more respectable, and then there's people who come from the commodities background, and that's much more spiffy generally. I have to say that Paul Tudor Jones and Lewis Bacon both come from Memphis, Tennessee. Right. Tennessee, you know, they're both from their father was called their family was a cotton trading. Sure. Paul Tudor Jones's family was a cotton trading family, and same yeah. way that Mike's so was a sugar, sugar trading, trading family. You know, so, comes yeah. from the so the fact that these, these trading yeah. systems and the CTA industry and managed futures. John Henry comes from a soybean farm, you know, they, they all come from the commodity markets. Yeah. Obviously, I didn't come from that background at all, but I didn't come from the securities industry. Not, not the, you know, I was never a serious, I never had a serious investment banking job. That's where the hedge fund guys came, all came from. They all came from the, yeah. from the securities industry, which of course boomed in the 1990s and 2000s in a t- t- titanic extent. We were sitting on a selection of gold mines in 1987-1988. Probably we could have gone in a number of other routes and made done very well, I think, because all, all the consultancy Mike refers to, you look, you look back on it now and it was all material and relevant, much more material and relevant. We were doing it to keep our heads above water, weren't yeah. we? You know, we weren't we doing it because we felt we, we have a great gift to give the world. I mean, we, we charged uh, Alexander Lang and Crookshank £60,000 to do the piece of research to explain to them why they were going to go out of business. They paid us and then they went out of business. You know. <laughs> so, but they paid us. Not as a direct result. <laughs> no, but uh, we, did, we did absolutely tell them they were doomed. But luckily they paid us before we gave them those results, I think. Yeah. So, um, yes, and they were doomed yeah. because... Their business model simply couldn't work in the new world they were in. 
But we didn't do it because we did it because we needed the 60 grand. But you look at when Renaissance, <laughs> when Renaissance so, really took off, really took off, 1989, 1990, 1991, that's when, that's when Renaissance, you know, that's when the Watson people were joining James Simons sure. and Henry Laufer and Elwin Burlakamp. Um, so that was the exact moment that all this was going on, you know, elsewhere in the world, and, and not just Renaissance, but other places as well. I mean, uh, Statarb was evolving at exactly that time in yep. Morgan Stanley, and Robert Fry left Morgan Stanley and, and other places as well. So the whole modern... Ken Griffin was starting Citadel... Uh, was, sorry, he was trading convertibles out of his bedroom in 1990 in, in college. So all those other firms were doing the same sort of things involving markets, computer simulation and trading you know, bringing to bear exactly the skill set that the three of us had in combination. So. It's, it's sort of unsurprising because you get, you know, a world in which uh, financial regulate, well, markets are opening up at least. Sure. Well, in financial regulation, there's a whole other story as to what happens next in regulation, but, and the emergence of technology and access to relatively cheap, um, though it seems expensive now, relatively cheap compared to history. It's unsurprising that simultaneously all, all over the world, a number of people with similar sorts of backgrounds. I think the reason why quite a lot of that work comes from the commodity side is simply because the market structures in commodities happen to become a model for the, for the way that other highly liquid markets then evolved. So that became a template. So if you had experience in those markets, you knew what to do when suddenly there was a treasury bond futures contract. Whereas if you're in the treasury bond market, you hadn't seen such a thing before and you didn't necessarily know what to do with it. So, I mean, we immediately knew what to do when a new financial futures market opened, and they opened, you know, there was one, one new one a week. But because we had a way of normalising the data, we could add it to our portfolio immediately mm -hmm. and see an immediate diversification benefit and know exactly how to exploit it. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think that's a reason why people from a commodities background were involved in this around the world in terms of systematic trading, and that's mm -hmm. because of the long history of futures markets and commodities. Sure. Just getting back to sort of the timeline, in 1989, Man Groups decided to offer you, uh, or to buy a part of, of uh, AHL, and, and you accept that. And five years later, of course, they offered to buy the remaining part. Did any of you back then think that so many years later, one, the, the firm would still carry your names, or? It's really become an institution. I mean, everybody refers to it still. I do remember us having the conversations about, you know, building something that would outlast us, but I don't think we thought too hard about you know, whether it would or not. I, I, there, there was an element both of, you know, being able to encode the rule set so the money management was more robust than any discretionary trader shooting from the hip. And I think we also institutionalized the, the research and, and, and development process. So I, I think there was a bit of a feeling of, you know, that's a nice looking business. And, and we went on to do the different things that each of us did. I think at that stage in life, I assumed when I left the room, everyone else disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, I certainly didn't think that, that it, AHL would go on to great success, not, not particularly because I thought that a man group wouldn't do a good job. That, that was clearly part of it. But more because... At every stage in the in the in the life of AHL, 
the sort of dominant thought for me is was always this can't last. In other words, we've found some things here and we've encoded them, and surely that edge is going to be taken away from us any moment. Which you know always gave me both a sense of, I think, gave all of us a great sense of urgency. So we were always in a tearing hurry because we assumed that this would be taken away from us if we didn't keep moving, moving fast. But I assumed that there was a very limited life in what we were doing. When we sold to the Man Group, I was extremely relieved because I didn't think there would be more than three or four more years in which it would work, whether, whether we were involved in it or not. So, yes, I'm very surprised that it's still going. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Roundtable. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes or SoundCloud and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. It only takes a minute, and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Roundtable.